Hello again, folks, and a happy Christmas to you all. This is Marty Ross, your local Aaron storyteller, here to help you celebrate in time-honoured fashion. And not with turkey sandwiches and mince pies, etc. That's, that's, frankly, that's far too fattening. And you probably had too much of both already. But to celebrate the season by way of that other grand old Christmas tradition. The Christmas tradition of all huddling together on a winter's eve. To enjoy some pleasurable chills from a Victorian ghost story. Yes, folks, that's what we're up for here. With the third and, in fact, penultimate chapter of just such a ghostly chiller. Yes, we're at episode three of the story I call with due respect to dear old Mr Dickens, the ghosts of Christmas past. Now, in our previous episodes, we've seen homeless Mary, afflicted with amnesia, as regards anything that happened to her more than three Christmases ago, after an assault in the back streets of Glasgow, given shelter here on Arran, in the grand, if snowbound, home of Dr Ewan Craigie. The good doctor himself, lonely at this time of year, since it was in a previous Christmas day that his wife ran off with her rather brutish lover, taking their children as she went. Well, that's the story the doctor has told, anyway. But Mary has encountered strange, even spectral phenomena. An ambulant snowman, a haunted doll's house, and has encountered a narrowly escaped, a shaggy and decidedly corporeal fellow out in the snowy woods. Dr Craigie at least seems to know who this man is. And he's told Mary to lock herself into the house while he heads out into the snow, shotgun at the ready, to settle some kind of account with this trespasser. Well, folks, let's pick up the story from there. Her soaked clothes threatening to harden to ice around her, Mary struggled upstairs and dragged herself clear of them, huddling in a, in a towel and lighting the fire the doctor must have prepared in her room in the time between his return and hers. Drying and warming herself, she, she pulled on a nightgown, stared out the window at no sign of any one or anything approaching the house, until an absolute exhaustion gathered swift about her, sending her crawling under the thick bedsheets, seconds before a sleep, soft and black and dreamless as death itself claimed her. <laughs> she, she woke with a start. The room was darker than it had been what seemed like minutes before. Suffused now with a soft crimson glow that was not simply that of the fire. Though daylight was still visible past the open curtains. Mary rose, looked out. Yes, it was still day, but, but only just. Red glow in the clouds above the sea. The early dark of a Scottish winter afternoon gathering fast. Was it, was it even the same day as the day on which she had fallen asleep? The house about her seemed silent, save for the crackle of a couple of burnt-down logs in the hearth. She drew on a dressing gown, stepped onto the gallery outside, 
which overlooked the hallway below. All there was still and undisturbed. Was the doctor back? She called for him! Her voice echoed but went unanswered. She descended, checked the front door. It was still locked. She called again for the doctor. Again, there was no answer. She hastened to the dining room. All was neat and tidy in there, speaking emptiness. She checked the other rooms on the ground floor, disclosing to herself the well-kept spaciousness and tasteful furnishings of the place. But finding no sign of the doctor, no trace of his return. Her mind filling with thoughts of what he might have had to face, out in the snowy woods, confronted by the figure whose violence she herself had barely survived, she raced back up the stairs. Hastening in and out of every room she found there, she found a nursery. Its walls fancifully painted with images of woodland birds, of seals and dolphins set against blue waves of butterfly-winged fairies balancing on buttercups. But the two small and empty beds, starched sheets drawn up tight, gave the overlooking birds and beasts and fairies an almost predatory quality, like vultures that had already snatched up their meal. She found the doctor's study lined with leather-bound medical texts, as stout and well-organised of desk as might have been expected. But the chair at that desk, quite empty. A discreet, unanswered tap at another door prompted her into venturing inside what could only be the doctor's bedroom. This startled her, for though the room was as spacious and well furnished as the one allotted to her, this room lay in disarray. Doors of elegant wardrobes and dark oak hanging open, much of their contents tumbled on the floor, tumbled and looking trampled pulled out drawers, likewise spinning over with disarranged articles of clothing. The sheets torn back from the bed, the wrinkled undersheet bearing vague soilings, various ornaments and other items of decoration scattered about, including a, a couple of small picture frames. Their glass cracked, their pictures gone. She backed out of the door, and it was as she did so that she caught a brief scuffling, rumbling sound from somewhere else in the silenced house, somewhere hard to define, so swiftly did the sound come and go. She, she looked about, leaned once again over the wooden rail of the gallery, and called down for the doctor. Once again, every room and passageway answered her with the most stubborn stillness. Mary backed her way along the gallery, that silence in itself, feeling as if it pursued her at its own stealthy, weighty pace. Turning back into her own room, she, she shut the door tight after her, wishing she had a, a key to lock this door with, pressing her own weight against it for a, a long moment in the absence of such a key. It was the smell which drew her attention from the stillness outside to the interior of the room itself, that familiar stink 
of wet dirt and animal pert. She turned sharply. The next thing her attention fixed on was the two feet propped on the rail at the foot of the bed. One still in a ragged boot with melting snow crusted around its edges and hints of reddish mud smeared on the sole. The other foot in a damp black sock. A big toe protruding from a hole at its top end. The skin yellowed and hardened at the edges. The nail lengthy and caked with dirt underneath, more like a claw on an animal than anything at home in sock or shoe. And beyond, stretched the length of what she now thought of as being her bed. Sprawled the very man who had pursued her in the forest. A grin turned her away from the thick of the dark and ragged beard. The head itself, quite at home, straying its wild hair across her pillow. The two great hands latched underneath that head. I'll let myself in, he said. Hope you don't mind. <laughs> Who are you to mind, anyhow? This was more of a home to me than it ever could be to you. Days I spent right here. This bed. Her bed. Bright winter days. Sun spinning through that window there. White as milk or some other nectar. Soaking the sheets she and I burned holes in. So naked they were, those winter days we spent. Them pale slopes and dark thickets and the fire in us dancing through. Oh, I was alive then. And I'm dead now. Dead like a corpse sweating. Like the damned losing sleep. Digging my way towards my own kind of judgment day. <laughs> and you think you could stop me? Smacking this wild deadness in me with a stick of what? A stick of dead wood. Down his brow on one side. A thick dribble of blood came coursing over skin already bruised and swollen. He released a hand from under his head, two thick fingers intercepting the blood's flow, then holding their reddened ends closer before his eyes for study. I told you, he said, didn't I? It's hell I got put, hell I got out of. Hell, you see, is my, my point of comparison for any hurting you can put me through. This, this, my dainty, is nothing. Hell's got demons, you see. And those devils, they were hot upon me. Hot as ice, as blizzards, night and day and night again, beat me down, burying me, piercing me through. But still, look, look. I shook the suffering off. Set myself free. Free to come back here. Renew old acquaintance. Show it how strong that suffering had made me. Come, sweet thing. Lie down. This bed I know fine well. Is more than fit for two. He reached up and, before she could properly react, grabbed her wrist, dragged her down onto the bed, loomed himself above her. That hand, with its bloodied finger ends now, stroking her cheek. Quaking, are you, he said, his own blood having run down to the corner of his own lip. Shaking with fear. So you should. But for why? Because you think me what? What? A monster? A beast man? A bogle sprouted out the woods? That's what he said, I do not doubt. But the truth is that what's smothering you here in its shadow, prelude maybe to, to
to break in your neck is a man filled with love. That's right, that's right. It's love bleeds red out of these pores. Love that saw me wallow in all that bloodless men would call sin right here with her in this bed. Oh, the bliss we gave birth to, her and me. The sweet, obscene perfection. The sanctity of the soul's but small change set against that. And in that hell it all saw me plunged to. I held hard in my breast, memory of an angel. It's that angel I'm back here to reclaim. You, him, you're just obstacles to be broken down the better to reach her. Here, before I break you, tell me, so what comes next won't hurt quite so much. Where is she? Where are they? Uh, 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 I don't know, she replied. Oh dear, he said, lowering his face closer above hers, so the dark wires of his beard tickled and scraped her own skin, the breath between his yellowed teeth, smelling of summer in its sourest heat. Then what's wife me to do? But wait you see how hurtful I can be. He had just begun lowering his face down closer to hers. She couldn't be sure whether it was to, to kiss her or bite her. When they were both disturbed by the kicking wide of the door, both looked round there in the doorway stood Dr Craigie, taking unrushed aim with the shotgun. Its barrels pointed somewhere in the vicinity of the gap between the intruder's shoulder blades. Do forgive me, said the doctor. I couldn't help eavesdropping. There's something about hurting the young lady. I'd suggest you don't. I'm keen enough already on shooting you like a dog. Like a dog, cried the intruder, leaping to his feet. Stepping sharply forward to confront the doctor directly, the doctor stood his ground. You saw me kennel, to be sure. Kicked in the foulest corner imaginable I've had. God knows to prowl and huddle my way through those woods out there longer than was comfortable. But this here facing you is a man and not a mutt, and a truer lover for your wife than you ever were. You killed my wife, the doctor said. My wife and my children. And now, and now I will kill you. Mary had drawn herself up tight against the headboard of the bed. This accusation, contradicting what she had heard from the doctor already. What? said the intruder. Me kill them? I didn't kill them. I came here to, to save them. Or find out what you did to them in my absence at the very least. Where are they? The intruder had taken a further step forward. The doctor inching back through the doorway onto the gallery the better to maintain distance between them. My one consolation, said the doctor, is you'll never see them again. For the place I'm sending you is for devils alone. And here, here is your ticket. He raised the gun higher, preparing to fire. Devils, cried the intruder, hurling himself forward across the bedroom's threshold, colliding with the doctor, the shotgun barrel forced upwards, discharging a shot towards the ceiling. Both men stumbling hard against the wooden rail where the gallery overlooked the hallway below. I'll show you the devil and me! Mary drew herself slowly, wearily off the bed, inching towards the doorway and the ongoing fight, which saw the two men blundering and thumping back and forth along that audibly creaking rail. She had reached the threshold. When the latest jolt in the struggle saw the doctor lose his grip entirely on the shotgun, the whole weapon dropping towards the hallway below, the doctor made an ineffectual lunge after it, but this only gave the other man an opening for seizing an upper hand in the fight. He fixed both broad hands around the doctor's throat. 
Even as the shotgun hit the tiled floor below, the impact discharging the other barrel, a hallway ornament shattering with the blast. The doctor fought, flared against his seizure, but the other man was the stronger man, and the force of his grip was already forcing the doctor so far over the top of the gallery's rail that his struggling, kicking feet were being forced off the ground. Who's going to the bad fire first, Doctor? The intruder was snarling. Looks from here like it'll be you. If you see my loved ones on the way down, tell them they're going to have me to their cell from now on. The Doctor gave a wilder wriggling yet, but both his legs were now tilted into mid-air. His balance shifted towards the point where he would be beyond rescue. Mary, Mary rushed forward, dipping low wrapping both her arms around the intruder's legs and putting all her strength, all her anger and all she herself had suffered at the hands of such men into wrenching both his feet off the floor. There was more weight in him than she could manage. His feet shifted awkwardly rather than lifted, but his surprise at the assault saw him spin around awkwardly, releasing the doctor, who made a lunge of his own to keep himself from falling and fell instead to the gallery's floor. Wheezing, gasping, coughing. The intruder had no sooner turned to face Mary, his back now tight against the rail, than she ran at him with a scream, slamming the heels of both her hands into his chest. He made his own backward sway into the teeth of the drop, though rather than fall, he reacted with a wild, angry swing of his arm. Her way, the clumsiness of this gesture itself, further unsettled his balance, and Mary, ducking clear of the blow, grabbed at his legs a second time, dragging them towards her, and this time forcing him into an outright topple over the top of the rail. He cried out, reaching and grabbing at thin air, but finding the thin air had a far mightier grasp. He plunged down through it, smacking hard into the tired floor below. The long seconds of stillness which followed were strung together by the low, gasping sounds of the slumped doctor regaining his breath. Slowly rubbing his reddened throat, he, he looked up at Mary, something like a, like a relieved smile creeping onto his features. <coughs> Thank you, he said, when enough breath was recaptured. Grabbing the rail, he dragged himself up onto his feet and looked down at the hallway floor. The bearded man had landed on his back. Limbs splayed awkwardly around him. A pool of dark and glistening liquid began spreading in the white floor from just underneath the fallen man's skull, spreading at more or less the same pace. The smile began draining from the doctor's features. Wait here, he said, as he made his way swiftly round to the top of the stairs, descending to the spot where his attacker lay. Kneeling over the sprawled form, he seemed fixed in a very precise examination. Before raising his head and staring, stark and solemn, directly up at Mary. I'm rather afraid you've... you've killed him, he said. Mary swayed back from the rail. She knew already what she had seen and knew all the more what she had done. But to have the blunt fact so plainly uttered made her spirit shudder rather as she had seen that falling body bounce and spasm briefly upon the hard floor. For someone who had spent so many moments of her recent life with inconceivable reach of being murdered herself, the thought that she might stand accused of committing such a crime 
Why, it shook her like a sudden, monstrous reflection in a mirror. She knew how brutal life could be for someone the world took for helpless. How might that brutal world take her now? She sensed her backward steps had almost brought her to the bedroom's threshold. She she wanted to, to bury herself under the bedsheets, deep as if they were a white grave in the snow the world would walk by, but there was no such hiding place. Not while she lived, and that dead man's red stain spread across the floor below. And b besides her, her way was blocked by something in the doorway, no, no, not the door itself, something soft and cold and dampish, cloth strung taut over what felt like a slender stringing together of skin and bone. She turned. The woman screamed in her face, screamed and screamed, the shriek sculpting a face around it. A face like white bone erupting from white snow and the white heat of pain. Hair wet and red as blood in a whirl all around it. The figure fragrant as flowers mouldering in frosted mud. It was a soul a thousand times more naked than her own and it lunged for her with the sheerest anger at a lover's loss, and the figure was, somehow, familiar. Mary reared back, lost her footing, lost something of her mind, slipping over the edge of a blackness, sheerer by far than the fall to the hallway at her back. <gasps> She woke with a start like a like a spine's crack, only to find herself alive and unbroken in a narrow bed, far thinner of mattress and spikier of spring than the, the bed she had slept in the night before, the bed she had been on in that brute's grasp laid there on her unbroken back, a thin white sheet and a scratchy grey blanket draped about her with a, a draughty gap at the bottom. She looked up and around at grey walls narrowly set about her, at a lowish white ceiling bearing a, a crack or two, at a chest of drawers of scuffed, thick-set and slightly mouldy wood, an oil lamp burning low upon it as the windowless room's sole illumination. A plain wooden door lay beyond the exposed rail of rusty-edged metal at the foot of the bed. It was a small room, blank of any clear identity. Yet it seemed, for the first moment of her waking, as unsettlingly familiar as a recurrent dream one guessed might turn nightmare at a moment's notice. Outside that door, someone, something was scampering, a swift tattoo of tiny movements shifting back and forth back and forth. Mary tried to rise. She could not, looking sidelong in both directions. She belatedly realised her wrists were knotted to either end of the iron rail at the top of the bed, tied there with what seemed lengths of stocking. An attempt to, to shift her legs found her ankles similarly fixed, the ends of their tethering stockings 
visible now past the loose bottom end of the bedsheets. The nightmare, she realised, had already arrived. That sound outside of little busy dartings, she wondered a second if it might be it might be rats to make the nightmare complete, but, but no, on the crest of this scurrying, and then that came isolated notes, unmistakably of, of laughter, children's laughter, sharp as pins, this likewise weirdly familiar in its utter strangeness, and then swift as birds, the scurryings were scattering, hurrying here and there and then, and then sounding nowhere. A silence thicker than the grey walls, sitting hard outside the door. No sooner was the silence shored up tight than it was broken by the approach of a more measured step. Weightier and directed more distinctly towards the far side of that door. A key was driven sharply into the lock and crunched around. The door opened softly and Dr Craigie entered, face placid, business-like as his black suit. He eased the door shut at his back, stepped forward. Please forgive the lack of comfort, he said, the plainness of surroundings, but they'll do for a prison cell. A murderer's prison cell, certainly. A, 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 a what? She gasped. Besides, after all I caught you at earlier, it would hardly be fit for you to be reclining free as a bird in my late wife's bed. Now would it? I, well, I, 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 I don't understand, sir, she said. Don't you? He replied with a light smirk. What you were up to up there was perfectly, foully comprehensible to me. What I was up to, she could only uncomprehendingly breathe. He had stepped alongside the bed, extending a thumb and a couple of fingers to straighten bed sheet and blanket where they lay across her breast. Such is, I suppose, he went on, the risk with charity. One invites into one's home what seems a lost soul, only to find that soul has secured its place in hell some while before. I should have known three years ago, when you disappeared with the rest of them, that you were as bad as he was. I had the good heart to take you for his victim, as surely as were my wife and children, to even believe that story about your loss of memory. Would it be so surprising, I thought, if, yes, three years ago he beat and discarded her in the back streets of Glasgow, all recall of how she got there bleeding from her cracked skull? I recognise you instantly, you see, when our paths crossed by chance. Convinced, even so, of your inability to recognise me. So I opened myself to the possibility of forgiving you. The possibility of awakening your memory. And thus, perhaps, perhaps, gaining some clue as to what had happened to my wife and children. Thus I brought you back here, thinking the very sight of the old place might instantly remind you of who you truly were. Yet with no sign of such a instantaneous reawakening, my, my kindness of spirit opted for patience over any forcing of recollection upon you. But that kindness erred on the side of outright Naivety, did it not? For you were his 
creature all along, weren't you? And any tale you told me of, yes, yes, your loss of memory, your mistreatment upon the Glasgow streets. What was any of that but a fiction the two of you concocted together to seduce all that was decent and generous in me? Why, no sooner were you ensconced in the very bed of my stolen wife, no sooner had you sent me out into the snow to, to hunt for a phantom, then you were opening the door to the very thief who stole my wife away in the first place. The sight of the two of you there today, laughing, coupling, like the, like the most monstrous parody of my most terrible memory. Oh, the revelation you gave me of my own horrendous, stupefied innocence. And then, and then the mockery you turned on me a moment before encouraging your brutish lover to step forward and murder me. I heard your every taunt, you see, even as I suffered his every blow and every goading you gave him towards pushing me over that rail. And then when I, when I fought so hard against him, the voicing of your frustration at his failure frustration that saw you striding forward I saw it clear to give me a firmer push than he had managed maniacal you were my anatic even I thank the Lord I had the presence of mind to twist myself about at the last possible moment turn my assailant into the path of your push so it was he you forced over and not me I'll confess a certain Pride in the look of horror that caught hold of you when you saw you'd accidentally killed your lover and co-conspirator and not this poor dupe. And when that madness of yours thus inflamed burned your mind down into black unconsciousness, well, well, what was left for me to do but bring you down here, your old quarters below stairs, and restrain you lest you wake to a still more murderous fury. To restrain you, prelude to my setting off across the snows to alert the proper authorities, which I am now about to do. But, 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 but sir, she protested, straining against her bonds. None, none of that's true. That, that, that man, he, he, he was a stranger to me, a, a total stranger. I hadn't seen him till I saw him in the woods there. I, I, I did try to kill you. I tried, I, I tried to save you. Believe me, I tried to save you. Quiet. Quiet, he said. When the police get here, you will doubtless rant your way through all manner of outrageous fictions. But I'd forewarn you. I am a trusted man in my community, a, a doctor, a man to be believed when he gives a diagnosis. My diagnosis with you will be one of hysterical and murderous perversity. A diagnosis framed in such a way that your every denial will confirm it. It might be better for you to lie there a while and Prepare yourself for your fate. I pray that fate is harsh enough to answer whatever fate you and your consort bestowed upon my loved ones. He walked to the door. She cried out again, attempted another declaration of her innocence, but he was already closing the door. A second later, she heard it being locked and his steps moving away along the passage outside. She lay back, beginning to, 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 to wonder if, if in some insane way he, he spoke the truth. Once before, three years ago in Glasgow, she had had the experience of, of waking to find she must accept the stories others told her of who she was and how she had got there. What she pictured as having been the truth, her own most recent truth. What was that to her now but 
but pictures, a world and a mind whose anchor had slipped free in this storm of conflicting impressions. It was silent now on the other side of the door. The flutter of flames in the oil lamp and the slight creaking of bed springs beneath her discomfort. All the sound on her side. She wondered in that absence of window if it was day or night and which day or which night. The thought that it might actually already be Christmas Day gave a further bleak pang to her position. And then, in whatever passage lay outside, that scurrying, scampering sound came again, seeming to rush upon the vicinity of the door from at least two separate directions. A hint of a high childish giggle was followed by a distinct rattling at the door. Raising her head, she could see the black doorknob shaking slightly. And then everything went quiet again. She risked a calling out. Uh, hello? Is someone there? Please, please, help me, help me, I... But no one answered. Not for a long second anyway. Though another high, echoing, isolated note of laughter then rang briefly in the air then. Silence again. Before a new sound began. A sound like a low, giggling chanting. She strained to hear it more clearly, but the, the words were not distinct. Were they words? Words of English? As the chant grew steadily louder, faster, she thought she could indeed begin to make out words, simple words, but, but, but all the wrong way round. Bed to you, light the candle, ah, comes here. Head you're off, chop to chopper, ah, comes here. The doorknob flew from the door. The metal plate to which it was attached rattling to the floor. The flying doorknob hitting the grey wall alongside the bedhead with a green spark before making its own clatter to the floor, even as the door flew wide so violently it was ripped from its uppermost set of hinges, hanging at a squint as a gust of the chilliest imaginable wind blew into the little room, momentarily making the flame in the oil lamp leap high out of the top of the glass funnel, blazing an orange brilliant enough to set the whole house alight before its light was extinguished. Blue smoke curling. And then a sharper sound of scurrying, of a scrambling into the room itself. Looking past the foot of the bed, she saw two low flits of fabric and hair and pale skin darting her way and then disappearing beneath the bed to accompaniment of a further brief gust of tiny laughings. The bed shook beneath her, springs squeaking as if hands, small hands were playfully pushing, pushing, pushing upward upon them. Then, then a moment's stillness before another round of scufflings began, palpably at both ends of the bed. The metal rails at head and foot started their own rattling. Between the bars of the lower rails, she saw two little hands, seeming lit by their own pale blue glow, yet white as the sleeves beneath, springing up, tugging at the knot of the stocking, tethering her left ankle. Mary made her own brisk pull on the fabric, unsure if she was doing so to, 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 to assist the hands or from a, from a revulsion over the thought that they might, in their busyness, brush her own flesh with their bony pallor. But one way or another, the knot of fabric slipped loose and that leg was free. The rail behind her head rattled likewise. She looked up 
A little figure in a dress, all white flounces, leapt to the top of the bed rail, perching there like a white-winged bird, reaching down to start untangling the silken knot that fixed her right wrist. She saw its face, and the face was beautiful and strange and terrible all at the same time, for it was, it was not a human face at all. Rather, it was as if the face had been cut off an outsized china doll and then hollow, strapped across a human face to serve for a mask. With the rubied cheeks on white porcelain, pouting red lips and spiked eyebrows. The porcelain was cracked here and there. Again, Mary made her own pulling on the fabric, and before long her arm was free. She caught a giggle from the bed's foot, and looking that way again, saw a similar face pop up there too. A doll's face for a mask. The tethering of her other ankle was being tugged at. She made her own tugging, and within seconds was free. Even as the matching fight over her still-fixed wrist came to its own end, suddenly... Holy free she sat upright, both little figures dropping from sight, the bed giving a fresh shake beneath her before she caught sight of the two little figures, a girl in a white dress, pink bow at the waist, a boy in a sailor suit, together rising into a sprint for the door. Wait, cried Mary, who are you? What, what's happening? But they were already gone. Through the dark opening beyond the wind-blasted door, their scudding feet sounding vaguely somewhere beyond. Mary dragged back the covers, leapt from the bed, shivering as, dressed only in her nightgown, she, she grabbed the lamp from the chest of drawers, fumbling for a, a box of matches left on alongside, using them to, to, to light the oil. She hurried after the figures out into... Yes. Yes, it was familiar somehow, that narrow and stony passageway, flickering to a similar distance either side of her, both lengths of corridor, quite empty. The sounds of those hurrying, tiny feet had disappeared leaving her clueless as to which way to turn. But then a tiny giggle sounded to her right and she glanced back that way in time to see a little white porcelain face that had peeked out past the corner at the passenger's far end, now retreating again from view. Wait! Wait! she cried, hastening her bare feet along the flagstone floor. I don't understand what's happening. I need to understand, please. She turned at that corner. Another length of empty passageway. Another couple of chiming notes of laughter. Then two flittings across the mouth of the next corner. They were heading towards... How did she know where they were heading towards? She did know... All those strange things the doctor had said, his, his suggestions that she was no stranger to the house, his remark about that tiny room back there being her, her old quarters, statements as ludicrous as his accusations regarding her and that other man, together, together, they all now seemed to hold some glint of golden truth amid their general casting of dirt. Mary sprinted on with a kind of exhilaration, as if the whole mad business were beginning to make the most perfect sense. She turned that next corner. Another much shorter stretch of passage, culminating in a dead end, a few brooms and brushes propped against it. But ahead of that, lay a narrow flight of steps, descending to a door covered in flaking blue paint. The door for the coal cellar.
How did she know that? Why did she remember that? She hurried down the steps, pushed on the door. It, it yielded heavily. She stepped through into a darkness full of the earthy stink of coal. Coal dust under her bare footsoles, she advanced. From out of the inky dark, swelled the coal cellar's jumbled contours, even as the, the memory of them resurfaced in her mind. Yes, yes, the line of plain pillars running down the centre of the room, the chopped firewood heaped in the far corner, the mounded coal heaped high in a deep recess. All kinds of odd scraps of below-stairs junk heaped and scattered here and there, rusting, cobwebbed, mouldering. But no figure met her there, though the dance of the candlelight made every restless shadow look as if it might yield a crimsoned phantom at any moment. Who are you? she cried. Where are you? I, I just want to know the truth. The truth about you. The truth about... The truth about me. Please, tell me. But only her own dusty echoes responded. Or responded in kind, at least. But off to one side of her, a single lump of coal rolled resonantly down the black heap in the recess. She turned the lamp's light more sharply that way. Another larger coal lump rolled down. And then another. And another. It was the sudden popping forth and tumbling down of that latter lump that alerted her to a rough corner of something sticking out of the heaped coal, something distinctly not coal itself. She stepped closer, turning the lamp's full light upon it, feeling at it between finger and thumb. It was a, a corner of coarse hessian sacking, as if in the heaping of that tall black slope, one of the sacks from which the coal had been emptied had itself become buried in the coal. But then another fat lump of coal popped forth, rolled down. And another. And another, as if to emphasise that she should take nothing for granted thereabouts. She set the lamp down on the floor then took firm hold on the rough fabric with both hands, beginning to, to tug lightly. More coal was dislodged, rattling past her. Whatever she was pulling on did not yield lightly, so she, she pulled harder, harder, more coal rolling down. The sacking shifted only slightly. A determination she could call her own took hold of her and she tugged harder, harder, creating miniature avalanches of coal either side of her, discerning hard corners within the sacking which, which hardly felt like coal at all. Finally, with a larger black cascade, whatever she was putting on came free so abruptly. The momentum of her pulling sent her sprawling onto her back, more dislodged coal rolling about her, the sack and its contents clumping down onto her chest. She rolled upright, shifting the sack lump onto the floor and closer to the light of the lamp. It was most definitely not a sack of coal. The object or objects within, larger, flatter, and lighter. She reached inside her first blind touch of the contents, leaving her in little doubt 
as to what she had found. She dragged those contents out in several handfuls. They rattled slightly in her grasp. Picture frames they were, in various sizes. Their glass, lightly or densely cracked where not broken away entirely. And behind that glass, paintings and elegant sepia photographs. The same faces appearing therein again and again as she shuffled through them, recalling the conspicuous absence of several pictures from the dining room wall on the night of her arrival. Several times the pictures confronted her with the face of Dr. Craigie, most of them dating back to before the onset of the familiar grey hair at his temples. But the pictures met her as often with the face of a sternly beautiful woman. Her lush wealth of curls painted in the richest, deepest shades of auburn. There were also the repeated images of two children an older, black-haired girl and a younger boy who seemed to have inherited a lighter shade of his mother's hair colouring. The figures were variously depicted, alone or with the children together, that woman and the doctor likewise coupled, plainly as husband and wife, for all that both of them seemed to stare out of the pictures in strikingly different even discontented directions. And then, of course, there were group portraits, the family in their elegant drawing room or in the grounds of their Arran estate. The largest and lowermost of the pictures was a broad sepia photograph of a scene on the lawn outside the lawn in high summer when the winter snows were long gone little meadow flowers sprouted amid the grass the family was formally seated before the camera faces slightly blurred perhaps by some miscalculation with the shutter the family servants arranged to either side of them there apparently was a butler military in his bearing and the set of his side whiskers next to a plump aproned woman who just had to be a cook and there on the other side of the grouping close by the children a little gathering of three housemaids one of them her hand on the shoulder of the sailor suited little boy who was glancing up at her affectionately, had she she had to pick aside a shard of cracked glass to be sure. Yes. Yes. The maid in the photograph had Mary's face. Moira. She was seized from behind, a glinting blade set against her throat, the picture dropping from her hands. Dr. Craigie, damp with snow, looming at her shoulder. Yes, of course, he breathed tersely in her ear. There you are. Found your way home at last. Moira, dear. Uh, Moira, she gasped, the name simultaneously confusing and yet with those pictures scattered before her, strangely appropriate in the note it struck. They've told you everything, I suppose, he said. The whole truth, have they? Have you? Forcing a confrontation. 
Of course they have. Of course. Up there, the moment I stepped out the front door, there she was, blocking my path with that, that basilisk stare, that, that cold anger, that medusan hatred, my beloved wife. And then the sound, it reached me even up there, the sound of the door down here below stairs being broken open. Those children of mine, their restless little games. The way they torment me this time of year, these few days around Christmas, most of all. I knew what they were up to, freeing you, luring you here to show you who you were all along and to let you know what I did to all of you. Isn't that so? This latter cry was directed pastor to the sheerest depths of the shadows the lamplight cast. Must she and I both be reminded of every last bloody scrap of it? Of course. Of course. Anniversaries call for recollections. And that's Christmas Day dawning outside already. But I can't. Don't you see? Risk having another living soul know the story. So please, please, a moment and I'll kill her. As I thought to kill her three years ago. And if her ghost wants to join you afterwards to hear the rest, well, well, I've learned already how little control one has over one's ghosts. Here, Moira, it won't take but a second. I'm a surgeon after all. My cut is swift and clean and always gets the job done. She felt the sharpness of the blade indent the thin skin of her throat, grabbing one of the pictures from the floor. An oval portrait of what she could only take to be, yes, the doctor's late wife. She smashed its surface of cracked glass hard into his face. The glass shattered outright and he cried out, his scalpel hand dropping, allowing Mary or Moira or whoever she ought now to take herself to be to, to scramble free and upright. Even as she did so, he advanced on her again, his face lightly lacerated in many places by the glass. The scalpel glinting in his hand like a dagger. Do, please, forgive me, he said. I know that in their world I'll never be set free of the curse of my own crime. But in this other world... This living world both you and I are currently walking. I can at least get rid of the last earthly threat to my life and my sanity. And then, well, well, I'll make peace with my own private hell. And so far as any man can, this side of a sterner hell yet. Like I say, your own ghost might even linger hereabouts for me to make peace with. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. The creation of a ghost requires a wee bit of work up front. Here he took a firmer step forward. The scalpel poised. But then the oil lamp on the floor between them shattered apart, sending a column of flame flaring into the air, high as a human figure, for that was what seemed to form out of the flames themselves, the figure of a woman, fiery-haired, rearing the doctor's way, voicing a cry of anger that tore through the air like flame itself. The doctor leapt backward as if his skin had been seared, dropping the scalpel, falling awkwardly against the mounded coal. An instant later, the fiery figure was gone. The doctor leaping forward to regain his blade, but Mary had made a matching spring and made it a second faster, herself grabbing the scalpel and raising it fast enough to deliver a harsh cut to the doctor's cheek. Ah, he stumbled back once more as she made a more considered step of retreat. 
scalpel held as intently as he had previously held it. Tell me, she said. It's my story. Then I want to hear it. The whole of it. Tell me. But we folks have run out of time. So if you want to hear that story, the whole story, the story behind all the story we've heard so far, you're going to have to come back, I'm afraid, next week. Same time, same place, to hear the concluding episode of the ghosts of Christmas past. It should bring in the new year nicely. Meanwhile, get your breath back. Gulp down a wee toe to that Christmas sherry, uh, so long as you're old enough. And I'll see you then. <laughs>